as we're moving our way from Passover to Shavuot, what we've been talking about is where we are, what we need to do, and so forth. And what we're going to talk about this time is repentance. And God willing, if I'm here next week, we'll talk about prayer. And that will sort of wind up the series and one hopes get us set up for Shavuot. So the question that you have to ask is, repent of what? First off, the Leviticus reading talks about how God deals with his people. And so when they get out of line, the farther they get out of line, what he does is he reaches out and slaps them. And if they return, wonderful. If they don't return, what happens is he increases the amount of pain that they feel. And it keeps going until finally he gets fed up with them and sends them into exile. That's how it works. I have a perspective on Israel and humanity that is perhaps a little different. I look at Israel as a model for all humanity. Now, a model, in order to be useful, and by the way, the models that are being run about disease and stuff are mostly all garbage. You see a new model study every two or three days, and they're junk. Israel, however, is a model. And in order for a model to be useful, it has to be two things. One, it has to be representative of the thing it's modeling. If it doesn't show you information about the thing it's modeling, it's a waste of time. The other thing it has to be is simple enough that you can run it. As I told you before several times, when I was at CU, I was in the modeling racket. And one of the things you discover is you've got to figure out what you're going to put in your model that's going to be representative so that it's useful, but it's also got to be simple enough to run on a computer. In other words, I was modeling the Colorado River. Well, the perfect model of the Colorado River is the Colorado River. It's 2,000 miles long, and it does all sorts of stuff, most of which I don't have any way of capturing in a model. So I've got to simplify stuff in order to get the model runnable. Israel is God's model of humanity. It's representative because they're people just like us. They're a nation just like us. They have received God's word just like us. But they're relatively small, so you can get all of their history into one book. So if you look at the Bible, Scripture, as reporting out what the model Israel is learning as it goes through its history, you can then take that and say, ah, this is how God deals with his people under these circumstances. Now, pop it up a level, this is also how God is going to deal with his world under the same circumstances. So, my perspective on Israel, and the reason I had Matthew read the two passages that he read, is the Leviticus passage tells you how God deals with his people Israel when they get out of line or when they don't get out of line. In other words, when they're in line with his will, he talks about blessing. But he also says when they get out of line, this is what's going to happen. And this is the sequence of things that's going to happen. I'm just going to keep smacking you until you either get the word or you finally get smacked clear out to Babylon. One of those two things is going to happen. Well, we can now take that and apply it to us. 
because we are members of the kingdom of God. We're not Israel necessarily, but we are members of the kingdom of God. So look around at the United States. What do we pride ourselves on? Notice the word pride there. Hmm, hmm. Do you notice what I said? Pride. What do we pride ourselves on? Our wealth. Our power. What is being taken away from us right now as a nation? Our wealth and our power. So what God is saying is, okay, go back and read about Israel. This is the progression of things. All right, now something's going on here and you are being deprived of the thing that you pride yourself in. Go back to my scripture and see what happens when Israel gets too proud and I have to deprive her of the things that she is proud of. Now, I don't expect that the United States is going into exile, but I certainly expect that it is entirely possible that this crumbling of our economy could continue until we're dealing with famine. I think that's possible. And the fact that our government is the agent that is doing that is simply a convenience. So when God needed Israel dealt with, he whistled up a Babylonian or Persian or Assyrian empire. Wasn't anything special about those guys. I just need you to deal with Israel. There isn't anything special about our government that is doing dumb stuff. He just needs them to deal with the United States. Is anybody here that does not know the story of the Lord of the Rings? Obviously written back in the 1940s. And by the way, Star Wars is the same story for you folks that are more modern. And what's the story there? The world has been overtaken by evil. And a small band of righteous, ordinary people, the Rebel Alliance or the Hobbits, you know, whichever it is, go out on a quest. And what they're doing is they are looking for the source of this evil so that they can destroy it and mankind can be free once again. That's the story, right? That's no longer possible. Because what we've done is we have replaced a central focus of evil with a diffuse evil that looks like a bureaucracy. So let's say, for example, you live in East Podunk, and you just got a real problem with the dog catcher. This guy is evil. He does bad stuff. He's evil to animals. He's harassing you and all this stuff. And I say, I am going to strap on my sword and I'm going to take out this evil dog catcher. So you take him out. About two days later, another guy will show up in a suit looking pretty much like the original dog catcher. He's going to take over the same dog catcher job and he's going to continue right on doing what that previous dog catcher did. In other words, there is no single focus of evil that this small band of heroes can go against with their quest and destroy it and then return the land to what it should be. I have been thinking this ever since I was in high school. You know, as a young kid in high school, you read all these stories and you dream about strapping on your sword and going after dragons or going after whoever or whatever. And the more I looked at society, I'm saying, wait a minute, where is this dragon that I'm supposed to slay? Because what you've got are faceless people in these slots who do bad stuff and if you get rid of one of them, what happens is it gets replaced by another faceless person in the same slot doing the same stuff. Now, two things. 
the system is anti-human because what it tries to do is turn people into spare parts. Oh, somebody took out our dog catcher over there. Okay, chuck up another one, put him in there. One dog catcher is just as good as another, they're interchangeable. So what has happened is the system has turned people into spare parts in its service. That's what it's designed to do. And that's dehumanizing. So it's designed to dehumanize us and turn us, as I say, into servants of this machine, which is what it is. Now, the ultimate source of that machine, of course, is Satan, but we can't actually get directly at him. The problem you've got is how many people have seen people out in the bright Colorado sunshine riding their bicycles wearing masks? I mean, that's stupidity on steroids. What that is, though, is that person is saying, I am a good widget in this machine. That's what that says. There is no practical benefit riding in the bright Colorado sunshine to wearing a face mask. In fact, it's even more stupid because you can't breathe. And the fact that somebody says, everybody wear face masks, and all of a sudden you have face masks popping up like dandelions, tells you the attitude of the people in the system. They see themselves as good widgets. Another example, it's been on the radio for two or three weeks now. This idea that since we're all isolated, what we're going to do is we're going to support our frontline workers or whatever they are. So everybody go outside of his house in his front yard and howl at 8 o'clock in the evening. For those of you who have not read 1984, 1984, by the way, was supposed to be a warning, not a how-to manual. What it is is the two-minute hate. And in 1984, at a certain time every day, everybody was to stop what he was doing and scream at the approved target. In other words, the bureaucracy would say, this guy is evil. And at a certain time each day, everybody was to get out of his car, get out of his desk, everything, and they were to scream at this guy. It was called the two-minute hate. And what it was is if you didn't scream, everybody would know that you weren't part of the system. You were a potential problem. Soviet Union, under Stalin, Stalin is giving a speech, and he's got the Politburo there. And at the end of his speech, everybody starts clapping. And then everybody realizes that he can't be the first to stop. Because if he's the first to stop clapping, everybody's going to look at him and say, why were you the first to stop clapping? So they literally clapped themselves into exhaustion because they were terrified of being the first one to stop clapping. That's your face mask thing. And what that tells you is that the majority of people like this system. They want to be seen as good members of this system. And by the way, there's a modern word for that. It's called virtue signaling. I'm going to say or do this so everybody will see that I am a good widget in the system. I mean, this is all straight out of communism, 1984, socialism, whatever you want to call it. It is population control. And it's population control by social pressure. Now, most people are, at some level, really unhappy. That's why you get these people in demonstrations out there screaming at whoever. The problem is they're unhappy with God. But they can't get at God. 
So what they do is they get at the one who's not wearing the mask, the one who's not speaking in the approved way, the one who is out of step with being a good widget. So what we need to repent of is acquiescing to allowing ourselves to be made into widgets in service of an evil system. And the evil is so diffuse, so spread out, that it's hard to see. Pick an example. If you pour 50,000 tons of sludge into a creek, everybody can see it immediately. Oh, that's polluted. You don't want to have anything to do with that because it's running brown. But if you only pour a ton in or 100 pounds in or whatever, it is still polluted. It is still just as dangerous, but it's not obvious. And the thing about this bureaucratic system that we are all enmeshed in is it is evil, but the evil is so diffuse, so diluted, that it's really hard to see. And going back to our Lord of the Rings analogy, there isn't a dragon out there that you can see, and ha-ha, there's the dragon, and I'm going to go after that dragon, kill the dragon or die. You can't find the dragon, and that's the problem we have. I'm sure lots of you out here would be perfectly willing to strap on your sword or whatever and go after a dragon if you could find one. But you can't. Now, Western society, there's an acronym for it. You may have heard it before. It's called WEIRD. W-E-I-R-D, Western, Educated, Industrial, Rich, and Democratic. United States, Australia, New Zealand, Europe, lots and lots of places in the world are WEIRD in that sense. And the problem with WEIRD is that the ultimate good in WEIRD is the individual. And what you lack in weird is strong institutions, except for the bureaucracy, that one's strong. You lack loyalty. People are not loyal. And there's no sense of the sacred. In other words, you don't have a sense that there's anything bigger than you except the bureaucracy, which is impersonal. Mrs. Obama just did a documentary about herself and so forth. And one of the things she said is, Having children cost me my dreams. And what that does is it bespeaks, I am the most important thing in the world, and the fact that I am doing what God designed me to do, which is be a wife and a mother and raising the next generation, and I find that doing that has cost me my dreams. I can no longer be a CEO. I can no longer be an airline pilot. You know, all those kinds of things. And... That is a function of our weird society. I've got a granddaughter who is graduating from high school, sort of. They may have a graduation in August. But I'm going to write her a letter. And one of the things I'm going to say to her is, don't follow your heart. That's really bad advice. Because the Bible says the heart is wicked. What you want to do is you want to follow the path that God has laid out for you. You don't want to waste your fertile years chasing some bureaucratic job so that when you hit the age of 35 and realize you don't have any children and all you have is a cat and a box of wine in your house. I mean, that's what women are being programmed to think is good. So what I'm going to tell her is I would like you to become a woman worth fighting for. I would like you to become a woman that some man will look at and say, I will protect you and I will fight for you because you're worth it. 
And in order to do that, the man has got to develop some loyalty. He's got to develop some responsibility. He's got to be able to pull his socks up and do what's necessary to protect his wife and his family. And again, our society doesn't point men in that direction unless you happen to join the Marines. But similarly, it doesn't point women in a direction that makes them worth fighting for. It goes both ways. So that's sort of, in 25 words or less, a letter that I'm going to write to my granddaughter on her graduation. All right, let's go to Daniel, the other thing we read. One of the things about weird, and all of you, I think, know by now, I'm not a rapture guy. As my little joke is, if I turn out to be wrong, you rapture guys can explain it to me on the way up. If I turn out to be right, come on out to my tent in the wilderness and I'll explain it to you. In other words, this, this is not a, am I a member of the kingdom of God kind of an issue. But what I will say about the rapture doctrine is it disconnects the people of God from the world. Because what you do is you say, well, things are really getting bad. But if they get bad enough, God's going to suck me up into the overhead and I'm going to be with Jesus and I'll watch Satan and the Jews duke it out down there. I don't care. Instead of having the church be intimately engaged with the world and trying to change the world and trying to conform people to the image of God, a lot of them are just sitting back on their blessed assurance and not doing anything. A lot of them don't vote. The Bible is an intensely political document. And if Western church has become apolitical, what that means is they have been taken out of one of the primary functions that God has for them to do. You've been taken out of the fight. Now, the poster child for all of that is Daniel. Not that Daniel wasn't in the fight. He was. Daniel is a righteous man. Daniel is one of only two people in Scripture about which nothing negative is said. Daniel lived in Babylon. He was taken away with Israel. He spent his entire life in Babylon and Persia, and he never returned to Israel. So when God decided to sweep Israel away, the fact that Daniel was a righteous man, now, don't get me wrong, God took care of Daniel, protected him, and all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying God abandoned Daniel, but Daniel didn't get to sit back in Israel and say, ha, 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 look at all those sinners are gone now, and it's just me, the righteous here. Daniel didn't get to say that. Daniel went into exile with everybody else. So the church which is not being political and not fighting this stuff with the sort of thing in the back of their minds that if it gets really bad, we'll be raptured out of here, I'm suggesting is incorrect. So what we need to do individually and as a church is we need to repent. And we need to lead as best we can the rest of the church into repentance as well. Now, a lot of them aren't going to be interested. It's just the way it is. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. So personal repentance comes first. And the first thing that you've got to do when you're going to go into personal repentance is you've got to quit lying to yourself. The example I used on Tuesday night is if I were to say Don shoplifting is a real problem, but my gossiping about Don shoplifting, that's okay. So what I'm doing is I'm lying to myself. By gossiping about Don shoplifting, I am in fact doing something that's probably worse than the shoplifting. Obviously, Don's not a shoplifter. It's an example. What we do is we tend to lie to ourselves 
And we tend to say that our sins are not that big a deal. Your sins, on the other hand, whoa, 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 you got to get cleaned up. So the first step in repentance is quit lying to yourself. Because that's what Israel did before they were sent off to Babylon. The book of Jeremiah chronicles it. And what Israel kept saying to themselves is, God's going to protect us. Everything's okay. Look there, we've got the temple of the Lord in our midst. Everything is fine. Nothing's going to touch us. We've got a covenant. He's promised he'll protect us. They were lying to themselves because their underlying behavior was such that God looked at them and said, you guys smell like dirty diapers. And the fact that you have got the temple in your midst, which you are lying to yourself by saying that will protect us, no, Read Leviticus 26 like we just read. And in fact, the edifice in your midst is not going to protect you at all if your behavior is like this. And so what I'm saying to you is examine yourself and don't lie to yourself. I have lots of sins that I struggle with and I am very clear that they're sins. Doesn't mean I always don't do them. I fail just like everybody else, but I am very clear that they're sins. I do not tell myself, oh, well, this is no big deal. No, it's not right. And again, don't get me wrong, I still do them. That's what struggling is called. When you still do them, even though you know you're wrong, that's a struggle. If you don't know they're wrong, then there's no struggle. If you look at yourself and say, my gossiping about Don Shoplet, that's no big deal. Then there's no struggle there. I don't have to struggle at all because I think I'm just fine. I'm lying to myself. So stop lying to yourself. Two, stop doing it, whatever it is. Just quit and confess your sin. Say it out loud. Go into prayer and say, God, I have done this, and I am sorry, and I'm asking for you to forgive me. And then step three is resolve not to do it again. Now, we're all human, and... I mean, some of us have novel sins, some of us have repetitive sins. I mean, we're, we're very creative with those things. But the point is, you're a human being. You're going to continue to sin. It's going to happen. But God has built into this system this idea of repentance and forgiveness and mercy. But what isn't acceptable is to say, well, this is really a sin, and I'm going to go do it, and then when I'm done, I'll come talk to God and, and I'll get forgiveness. That's sinning with a high hand. He doesn't approve of that. But if you fall into temptation and you slip, as all of us do, recognize what you've done, come to God, confess it, say, I have sinned and I am asking for your forgiveness and I don't want to do this anymore. That's what repentance is. So that's personal repentance. All of you, go out and work on that. Corporate repentance, that's the next thing we got to do. And that's where Daniel's prayer comes in. Because Daniel, remember, is in Babylon, and he is in exile. And he reads the book, Jeremiah, and he recognizes, okay, 70 years, ha, looks like 70 years is up. So what Daniel does is he goes into prayer and repentance on behalf of the nation Israel. And what he says is, I and my fathers and my kings have all sinned against you. I am ashamed. You are righteous. Remember I said beginning, there is not a 
negative word in all of Scripture spoken against Daniel. Everything that's written in Scripture about Daniel is positive. So at least as far as Scripture is presenting, Daniel is a righteous man. Now, he's human just like everybody else, so I expect there was probably some stuff that he did, but Scripture doesn't bother to tell us that. Remember I talk about Israel being a model? So Daniel is set up as a model of a righteous man. And what Daniel felt necessary was that he would get on his face and he would confess the sins of himself and his people before God and throw himself on the mercy of God. That's what that passage in Daniel chapter 9 is. It's him throwing himself on his face for the benefit of his nation. Now, there is a real temptation, and I've got to tell you, I get tempted by it more than most. Look at all them sinners out there and say, God, we got some lightning here. It's been a while since we've called down fire from heaven. I could use some lightning right now, God. Very tempting. But what God says is, love me, love your neighbor. What God says is, while you were sinners, I sent my son for you. What God says is, you're supposed to fall on your face and repent and pray for mercy on those people. You are to bless and not curse. So as you're falling on your face, confessing and praying for the Colorado legislature, understand that you are praying for people who would laugh at you for what you're doing. Doesn't matter. Do it anyway. And the best example is a guy in Britain. I've told you about him before. He regards himself as sort of a successor to C.S. Lewis, He's a medical doctor. He came to theology and decided that the Mormon church was bad. He's not actually a Mormon. It's just that he likes their theology. Anyway, what he said is, and I really like this, we're in the midst of this great diffuse evil system where there's no particular dragon that we can go out and slay, where there's no evil sorcerer that we can go out and get rid of. It's all this diffuse stuff. Our job is to pray and repent and trust that God will take the little that we offer him and multiply it. In other words, you aren't responsible to solve the whole problem. But what you are responsible for is to do what God has called you to do and then trust that he will take that little bit that's just you and he'll multiply that and he'll make something great out of it. That's your job.